0: what's going on everyone this is kj kearney i am the founder of black food fridays i'm here with my good friend anella malik of feed the malik she's in washington dc i'm in north charleston south carolina and together we make the Fix Your Plate Podcast. And we are members of the Eat, Drink, and Dine Podcast Network. And we have a special episode. A couple episodes back, we said that we wanted to get some input for y'all because we were going to have a discussion about Black food. But before we get to some of your comments, I want Nella to give a little background information on how we got here in the first place. Because to be fair, this conversation is rooted in an experience that she had online. uh, But I don't want to steal her thunder. Anella, tell the people what happened.
1: So, we touched on this briefly in a previous episode, but I, as a food content creator, made a video about what Black food means to me, right? And the video was specific. I rooted my voiceover in my own experiences, in my family's experiences, and I just talked about that. And I made a dish that was a vegan, creamy collard green dish, right? And the response from some members of the Black community was vicious, that this isn't Black food, that uh, Black food equals soul food and nothing else, um, and that Black people don't cook this way, and who are you to say this, etc, etc, etc. And I felt like, clearly I had touched a nerve, but also this was a conversation that needed to be had, if not even trying to give a definition of Black food, right? Not even trying to tell other people what Black food was, but just talking about my own experiences triggered so many people. Um, and, you know, I'll be frank, that experience was really hurtful for me because I was making a video about my father's experiences and, my, uh, and what he taught me about food. My father was a huge influence on my life. You know, he was an, a Black activist. Um, and he was <laughs> on a restricted diet for a large part of his life uh, through his own personal choice and his you know, beliefs about what the industrialized food system does to black people and black health, but also because as is very common in the black community, and this is something that I think we need to acknowledge here at the beginning, uh, black people are far more likely in the United States to have asthma than other groups. Um, well then white people and along with asthma it's very common for people to have other allergic diseases so they tend to go hand in hand and food allergies tends to coexist right there's a high prevalence of food allergies in that community well my dad had asthma and he had food allergies like many black people and this is a result of systemic you know and institutional discrimination that this this health uh, issue is so prevalent in the black community and it does impact people's diets, right? So we are talking about black food, but we need to recognize that a lot of black people do have restricted diets because of their beliefs. And there is a deep seated vegan movement in the black community and also because of the health issues that they face because of their blackness. And so I felt like the conversation around the video I made was really erasing that reality and really erasing the totality of the Black experience, right? We're not talking about Southern or soul food. We're saying Black food in recognition of the fact that the Black community in the United States is so broad. That's such a broad category. And... I use the word black because I think it's more inclusive than just designating one cuisine or one particular group, right? We're talking about various diaspora communities throughout the United States and not all black people in the United States, even black people that have been here since slavery, not all of them have ties to the South as well. And so that's something we need to recognize when we're talking about black food. So that started this conversation. That's you know my stance um, and my stance is that If a black person wants to talk about their food experiences, they're talking about black food, right? They are talking about uh, the food of their culture and their history. And we need to have a more nuanced understanding of what that might mean to various peoples.
0: Yeah, I think if we are not to bury the lead here, what I would like people to get from this conversation is that black food is all encompassing, right? Like we were talking about how Where I'm from, you know, Charleston, South Carolina, we're surrounded by the ocean and rivers. This is pretty much the epicenter of American chattel slavery. And so my ancestors ate mostly vegetables and seafood. And to this day, a lot of black people in the Charleston metro area were heavy on the seafood, were heavy on the vegetables. It doesn't make us less black than St. Louis black people or Chicago black people or Texas black people if they eat brisket or whatever the case may be. Uh, We eat all those things, but I really am glad I'm I'm not glad that you had that experience, but I'm glad that experience led us to have this conversation where we can openly say it's time for us to reevaluate what it means to be black in food and specifically what black food means. And to that point, we asked some people to give us their thoughts on either dishes that were, you know, that meant blackness to them. Or just what their ideas on black food meant. And they hit us up on Instagram. And so if you would allow me, I want to read one of the first comments that I read, Anella, that made me be like, ooh, I had to grab my chest. I thought it was, I thought it was beautiful. At Aaron Petre writes, Heritage, the ancestral clues carried in our food, the different names for the same dishes eaten across the diaspora with little twist at each stop the story of our journey from then to now. Bruh, put that on a T-shirt. I mean, how beautiful is that, Anella?
1: I love that. And I also love that in their definition, there's room for change. And so if for listeners who don't know, I'm writing a book about the Black influence on American cuisine for National Geographic. And I'm just in the research stages right now, but... One thing that I've come across over and over again is this process of reinvention. And this process in food is not just unique to the black community. It happens when you have people exposed to new ingredients in a new environment, whether that exposure was forced or voluntary. It's still, you know, exposure. And right, what right. you see is that people use the techniques they know, but they might substitute new ingredients. Or they might learn a new technique from their neighbor living in a new city in the north and, you know, then incorporate that into the cuisine they make at home but use the flavors of their homeland, right? And so that type of evolution is very common and I think should be celebrated because all cuisines are evolving all the time. And that just means that we as people are persevering, that we persist, right? If we stop cooking, then we're probably not really living and that's that's how Ooh. i feel so Ooh, that was good um, if
0: we stop cooking then we're probably not really living
1: i mean that's that's how i feel like really we're talking about continue continuing the culture And how do you do that? You do that through storytelling, you do that through community building, you do that through a shared sense of identity, and food is central to both the storytelling aspect and that shared sense of identity. So of course, it's going to evolve as the community evolves, and that happens in so many various ways over time, but I think it's really interesting because right now in the internet food culture, in my view, we are a little bit obsessed with quote-unquote authenticity. Oh, God. (laughs) And there's been lots of articles about this, and it's usually in relation to to often Asian cuisine. The articles always use Yelp as an example, and I think Yelp is a great example, is that you'll see certain types of quote-unquote ethnic restaurants get marked as authentic in reviews. And authenticity can be a weapon because when I say authentic soul food, for other people, that might mean that it has to be cheap that it has to be a greasy spoon, that it can't be offering farm to table, even though, you know, soul food traditions, I would argue, are rooted in the farm to table. Exactly. Movement before it was even called farm to table. Right. And so there's all sorts of preconditions that we put on something to call it, quote unquote, authentic, when in reality, every cuisine is evolving all the time.
0: I agree. I think that's a conversation that is happening a lot in Charleston as it revolves around Gullah Geechee cuisine, right? And what is or is not authentic. I'm of the mind frame that Black people need to start taking ownership of their individual subcultures as it relates to cuisine. I mean, culture in period, you know, period, but especially as it relates to cuisine, because, Anella, if you want to move to France and learn how to cook French cuisine from French people, you can come back to America, open up a French restaurant, and no one's going to mistake you for trying to pretend that you're French.
1: And you also might win a Michelin star.
0: You will definitely win a Michelin star because you're a black woman cooking high-end French cuisine. So that brings up two things to my mind. Why are we as black people not codifying our cuisines so that we can be the ones, if we're obsessed with authenticity, why not have people come to us? Come to Charleston, learn about Gullah Geechee cuisine from Gullah Geechee people. That way, if you do go to Rhode Island or you do go to Michigan or you do go to Utah and you want to open up a a Gullah Geechee restaurant, you will have that foundational base, not just of the technique, but of the history behind it. Um, We often, like you said earlier, Nella, we try to just cap, right? We cap it. We cap what black food can be. We cap who can do it. We cap who can profit from it, but we don't think about it from an Afrofuturistic term. Like, what does soul food look like a hundred years from now if climate change doesn't change? Right. Like, if we don't get a wrangle on climate change, and all the corn is gone, and there ain't no more grits, and your only definition for soul food or for black food was grits, like, what is you gonna do?
1: I mean, that's an interesting point, right? Climate change will absolutely impact cuisines worldwide. And if we don't have a definition of Black food that has a little bit of give to it, then we will face a crisis when, you know, core ingredients maybe aren't available or they're just astronomically expensive, right? So they're no longer accessible to the everyday home cook. I would argue that that circumstance would force the conversation because at that point there would be no more avoiding it but you know this emphasis on authenticity i think is important to know your cuisine's history but i find that often the people at least in this instance with me who were crying about this not being black food i felt actually didn't know much about the history of black peoples in the united states
0: there we go History
1: of the black diaspora because You know, black people eat greens. We eat all sorts of greens. There's a long history of that. But people were really upset that my greens were vegan. (laughs) And, you know, veganism, (laughs) veganism has a long history in the black community, even among civil rights leaders. And even before that, well before it had a name, many peoples of the Black diaspora had largely plant-based diets uh, historically. So for the people upset about the vegan aspect, I was like, maybe you should read a little bit more about Black history to understand why, especially given my father's activism, why this dish made so much sense.
0: Yeah. When I saw the blowback and just, you know, I, we probably should have did this at the beginning. But for a little bit more context, Anella was a part of a campaign. This was a promotional campaign with a company. So it was a partnership. And so when you saw the video from that other company's perspective, from their page, and you just see her hands, I could see people thinking, who is this white woman? I hear talking about some vegan creamy green. So let me just say that I could see why people were upset initially because they might have thought that you were a white woman however
1: yeah,
0: no okay oh, go, yeah go ahead I
1: will say this I got light hands and I've always had light hands my hands are like six shades lighter than my face and I think that's pretty common but beyond that whether or not people have that initial knee-jerk reaction before coming for someone on the internet you should read
0: that's I mean, what that's I was going to say
1: right. I was tagged, it was clear who I was if you bothered to click, but people were so quick to get upset. And then, right, there were quite a few people who I tried to stay out of it. I really was like, I'm not having this argument. I don't feel the need to defend myself. Not only am I sure of my own family story, I'm very sure of, you know, the research that I've done thus far and that, you know, this is clearly a conversation we need to have in the community. But there were many people in the comments who once my friends waited in and were like, by the way, this is a black woman who's like literally knows her stuff. This is what she does. There were people who were like, well, she still doesn't know nothing about black food, clearly. Right. There was that doubling down and that policing. And I remember telling you at the time, like, don't white people police us enough? Like, don't white people tell us what it means to be black in ways that are overly simplistic and harmful and dangerous enough. Why do we then take the stereotype and assume it as a mantle um, and use that to police other black people and how they live?
0: Because that is a sign that oppression is working, right? When the oppressed start oppressing each other, then the job of the oppressor is done White people can say, oh, you know, well, white supremacists can say, not all white people, but white supremacists can see an instance like what you had and be like, "Mm, job well done. We got the darkies turning on each other. (laughs) You know what I'm saying?
1: Not the darkies turning on each
0: other. (laughs) They're turning on each other. And I mean, but that's why I think this conversation is so important, right? Is because sometimes we don't even realize that we are perpetuating harmful psychology yeah. Um, and what your what your situation pointed out to me rather was that there's a need for a basic level understanding of what black food is or is not
1: well and like what black means today right we especially in 2021 I think as a culture have really assumed this mantle of Black Lives Matter, right? As as Black people in general. And I know there's some disagreement, you know, about what we should call the movement or who should lead the movement. But generally, I think this is something Black people agree on. So we are now in this space where the majority of Black people are like, call me Black. But that is a very broad term and I don't want to be called Black if it's only your type of Black and it excludes my brothers and sisters. That's how I feel about it. And if it excludes the experiences of Black people who may have grown up in a different part of the country or who may have had you know, some different upbringing than you, I don't want that kind of Black. I really don't because I don't think it serves us. And I will say this, right? I have, I'll address this part because I think it's important. I have light skin privilege. Duh, <laughs> I'm very conscious of it, which is why when I make these videos or I talk about you know Black food, I always root it in my own personal experience because I don't wanna be viewed as speaking for the entire Black community. Right. That is not my job and is a mantle I don't wanna have to bear. That is a heavy, heavy burden, right? I would just want to be able to have a conversation about my lived experience without being simultaneously erased by white people and black people. And while I understand there is there are levels to privilege within blackness, you know, I have found this whole like light skin versus dark skin thing to be really challenging throughout my entire life because I will say this with all due respect to people with darker skin who I know have different experiences than me, I've never been able to fucking pass So though you may be upset because you perceive my life to be easier than yours, and in some ways it probably is, I have never been able to not have this yoke of being Black in America on my back.
0: Right, right. And
1: especially as a woman who ended up going to Georgetown and joining the Foreign Service, whether I'm light or not, I lived and operated for years in environments where I was the only one. Right. And that that is an experience that I think like really changed me and shaped my view of identity, because in that space, it doesn't really matter if you're light skin or not. There is no one else.
0: That is really big, man. And, you know, my opposite, I have an opposite experience from you. Right. Where I'm from, National Geographic came a couple of years ago. Shout out to National Geographic. They came to Charleston a couple of years ago and these did some DNA tests because they found some bones in charleston and they were like oh we want to see if anybody in charleston is related to the bones that we found i don't know if they found a match but what they did find is that people in charleston black people from charleston are like 98 percent of our dna is shared with west africans it's insanely close bro it's super close so my experience obviously is different from yours and that i do have darker skin I went to majority black schools my whole life. I went to an HBCU. The city that I live in is the third largest in South Carolina, but it's half black. You know what I mean? So like my experience of what I might think of as black compared to your experiences and what you might think of as black are going to be different. But when the police show up, we're all getting arrested. If we're lucky, you know what I mean? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like that's the thing that I always try to tell people. Whether you went to Georgetown or South Carolina State University, home of the Mighty Bulldogs and the Marching 101, when the police show up, we are all black. So I always keep that in mind when I'm dealing with other black people because we're not always going to agree, especially yeah. when it relates to food. We're not going to always agree. But as long as we're shooting towards the same basket, I feel like we have a starting point. And I never lose sight of that. And I felt like on your post in particular, there was a lot of people in the comments who lost sight of that, that she can have an experience that is both black and creamy vegan. You dig me? And like, I can have an experience where my whole life is just blue crabs, red rice, and collard greens, right? And we're still black.
1: I mean, and like, I ate a lot of collard greens growing up. We grew them in our garden, which is another long standing black tradition.
0: Mm. But that's not black having a garden. <laughs>
1: Just since the flame days, I don't know, but I think you're right. As long as we're shooting towards the same basket. And it's I think it's difficult for people to have a nuanced conversation about privilege within the black community because at least from my view, it often devolves into the suffering olympics, which I hate. I hate that. We Roll can have different car, yeah. experiences and we can also understand that black people in general are systematically disadvantaged and discriminated against. And I see it now also between the Black and the Asian community. And I have, I have had to bite my tongue because I don't want to start a huge fight on someone else's profile or right. but I'm like, what are you doing? Like this is not this is not productive. And also their experiences don't have to be exactly the same as ours for us to have empathy for them as human beings and also to believe that they should be able to live free, healthy, happy lives as full citizens without fear.
0: You know what, though? I'm so glad you brought this up because you have a foot in both camps, so to speak, right? So you are personally affected by both brutality against Black people and brutality against Asian people because of who your parents are, right? Mm -hmm. And so how do you reconcile what black food is when you legit have asian heritage and black heritage so like let's let's start getting down into that so anella for you what is black food what does that mean
1: i mean black food is an all-encompassing term for the foods traditions and you know food ways of the black diaspora community and we're we're specifically talking about american food black american food because if we take it outside of the united states It is such a broad concept, but Black American food has strong ties to West Africa and to the Caribbean and (laughs) South America, right? So (laughs) it is an incredibly broad topic. And I always try to use the term Black food because I think it's more inclusive of the various historical inputs that we have in the Black community in the United States.
0: Was there ever a time, I know you're very mature in your thinking now, (laughs) But was there ever a time where you could admit that your definition of black food may have been limited to these one or two things or situations or whatever the case may be? Because that would be the same for me. I would say yes. There were definitely times where before I started working in the food industry, that if you asked me what black food was two, three years ago, my definition would have been very succinct and very resolute. How about yourself?
1: I think when I was young, yes, but it's hard because I didn't think about these things in in any sort of concrete way when I was young, right? It was all like kind of lived experience and things you absorb from your parents. But my dad was a little bit radical and I would say had a streak of like Pan-African nationalism. And so I grew up in a house where we had a garden and that was very important to him. You know, Black food sovereignty was extremely important to him. And I grew up hearing stories about, you know, our ties as a people to West Africa. But I also had both of my parents have a lot of very close friends that are like aunties and uncles to me that are Caribbean. So I think as a kid, I probably would have said like black food is like gardening, the food my parents make plus Caribbean food. I mean, that's what I had been exposed to at the time. You know, my, my dad and I My dad died 10 years ago, so we never got to have the conversation that we're having now as like mature adults. But I suspect his definition would have been very resolute, but also pretty broad would have been like black people food. Any food that black people say is their food.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, that's how I feel about it now. You know, understanding. So first of all, I want to use I want to admit that I would use the word diaspora without full knowledge of what it really meant, right? Because even when I used the word diaspora before I started doing Black Food Fridays, my mind was still thinking Black people in America, right? And now because of the work I do and the people I've been interacting with over this food thing, I have a full understanding of what Black diaspora or African diaspora means, right? So like one of my favorite restaurants that had to close because of COVID was this place called Ma Glorious Trinidadian Cuisine, right? And I learned that Trinidadian Cuisine is very influenced by Asian cuisine. So you could go to her restaurant and get your shrimp curry with chow mein. And I'm like, wait a minute, this blows up any preconceived notions of what I thought Black food was. I have a friend who's Ethiopian and he told me, that in his mind one of the blackest foods is lasagna because i guess in ethiopia like lasagna is like the fancy someone's coming home from jail someone's coming home from college <laughs> someone's getting married it's a birthday it's
1: celebratory food yeah
0: like it's it's we're eating lasagna and i'm like bro and if if it wasn't for black food fridays i wouldn't be having these conversations and expanding my mind so while While the people who got at you, I still think it's kind of shameful that they did that. I definitely understand where they're coming from, because if your horizons have not been expanded past whatever definition you have created in your mind, then you're going to stick to, well, if it's not ribs, brisket and, you know, rump roast, then it's not black. Or if it's not macaroni and cheese, it's not black.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's true. And I will say that to this day, my definition of black food changes all the time. It's expanding all the time. I'll read something, I'll hear something, I'll see something and I'll be like, hmm. And then, you know, there I go down a tangent because this, this question of who food belongs to is really fascinating to me. And the lasagna example is perfect. If he claims it and it has importance and significance in his culture, it is. I mean, that is.
0: It is and there, right. are,
1: there are, think about rice as a, for you, right? Think about rice as a staple of this regional Black American cuisine, but also as a staple for how many other cultures around the world. Does that mean that nobody gets to claim it? Or does Mm -hmm. that just mean that? It has cultural significance to various groups and each group might interpret that significance a little bit differently.
0: Well, you preaching the night, you preaching the night, Anella. rice. <laughs> I think rice is a great example, right? Because to me, you know, when I posed this question, I put in my description, in my caption, excuse me, that rice is the blackest food of all time to me because my ancestors were literally forcibly removed from their homeland in West Africa, which is known as the Rice Coast, for their knowledge, for their skill set, for their ability to problem solve. They were brought from Africa to the Caribbean and then to Charleston, South Carolina because they were some of the smartest people on earth, especially as it related to rice. So,
1: their rice growing skills and
0: abilities. Exactly. So for me, we eat rice, until my doctor made me change my diet recently, but <laughs> I would literally eat rice every single day and have no problem. It's I'm what well, I tell people I'm genetically predisposed to eating rice. Right. But someone from California might hear that and be like, rice is Asian people stuff. That's Chinese people stuff. That's Japanese people stuff. So you're right. Like regionally, even the definition can fluctuate between what is or is not black food.
1: And then you get into this interesting question and I've been wrestling with this with the book that I'm working on is that how can we even try to paint an accurate picture of black food when it means so many things? And I think we just have to stop being hung up on telling 100% of the story all the time, right? Like we can't, I can't tell the story of Golagichi cuisine and the, you know, Texas and Western frontier cowboys that were black and the oyster houses of New York all at once. But what we can do is acknowledge that there are so many interwoven overlapping threads. We can pick at them and and try to illustrate them in ways that honor, you know, that experience and that culture, but are not exclusionary, right? So there were lots of black cowboys when we were expanding westward and their food ways are yep. going to be very different because that was a hard life
0: Come on, <laughs> on the
1: trail, you know, like so and with very yes, limited yes. cooking equipment. Um, and so, of course, the food that they developed is going to be different than Charleston's legendary historical black caterers who would throw you know, seven course feasts for primarily white, wealthy attendees, right? Yep, yep, um, yep. But they were both groups of black people doing important things in the development of our food.
0: That's so real. Um, I want to get back to one of the comments, because I'd love to get your opinion on it. Reserve.eats said, of course, I immediately thought of soul food. Then it shifts to childhood memories with my grandparents. Perfect breakfast. Grits with Italian or country sausage and eggs, right? And if that doesn't speak to what you've been saying all along about how these definitions, especially as it relates to black food, morph, right? Because in my mind, Italian sausage, (laughs) while it may be delicious with grits, does not make black people food, right? Like my old thoughts, my old, no, no, my old thoughts, right? Old KJ would have been like Italian sausage and grits. Ew, you know, like that's not black people food. But if that's what her black grandparents were making and her black parents, and now she as a black woman eat, why can't that be black food? And
1: I don't know anything about her history, but the Italian sausage makes sense to me. I have read a lot of like historical reports that are basically based on interviews that were done at the time or shortly thereafter or oral family histories, especially around the great migration. You had black people moving to the North and other parts of America in large numbers. You had them settling in cities. You had this great upheaval of black people from the South and they made connections with new communities. And so I've, I've read these, you know, very disparate reports, but they have similar threads of, oh, my grandmother started making this dish because she learned it from our neighbors who were Italian at the time. Mm. Oh, and then she liked it. So she just made it every Sunday because it became her dish, right? Or Black women were overwhelmingly employed as domestic labor. So doing things like laundry, cooking, et cetera, for middle class and upper middle class families. And so they would, of course, bring their own cooking experiences to those jobs, but they were also exposed to the cuisines that their employers preferred, right? just as they were in the Plantation South working in big house kitchens. And so they would bring ingredients home from those jobs, leftovers, excess, et cetera. But they would also bring home the cuisines they were exposed to and experiment with them, right? I read a story about this girl said her mom used to come home from her job as domestic labor. And once a week, her mom and her sisters would lock themselves in the kitchen and start experimenting with whatever her mom had brought home from her job. And to them, it was like a big culinary experiment.
0: That's nice. So the
1: Italian sausage makes sense to me, right? Like, of course, we have connections with other communities. We don't live in a vacuum,
0: man. So, you know, the one thing I want to make sure that to anyone who has been listening the whole time, first of all, thank you for listening. And second of all, if you get nothing from this conversation, just understand that Anella and I are not trying to define what is or is not black food, rather what we're trying to impress upon everyone who's listening is that Black food as a term means so much to so many, and what we're advocating is that all of it be included. I don't want to speak for you, Anela, but I feel like I can. Is is that how you feel?
1: Absolutely. Especially because in the American context, what we know (laughs) is that Blackness is a distinct marker, no matter how new you are to the United States or not. Blackness is a distinct marker that will shape your experiences in this country. And that is why blackness has become, you know, this moniker for our our identity.
0: Boom. We're going to put a pin in this one. This episode is complete. But before we go, me and Anella decided we wanted to start doing something. We're going to end every show with some shout outs. And I want to go first. So. But I don't know when you're going to actually hear this, but this week was a very difficult week for me because I work in education and I lost not just me, but a lot of people. We lost our favorite professor of all time. His name was Leon Myers. He was my freshman math teacher at South Carolina State University. And I found out getting ready for work that he had passed the night before and I hadn't a chance to process it. So I like I'm crying in the shower. I'm crying on my way to work. I get to work. I hold it together for breakfast duty. I work at an elementary school in case anyone is wondering. After that, I go to the playground and I just lose it. My boss comes out there. I cry in front of him. Like I just I wish I had a chance to process it. But also at the same time, I'm glad I experienced that outpouring of emotion. He was literally the hardest professor teacher I've ever had in my life. He didn't let people wear pants in his classroom. He would curse you out if you wrote the wrong answer on the board. He would curse me out frequently because math wasn't one of my strong (laughs) subjects. (laughs) And he'd be like, get that shit off my board before people walk by and think I'm teaching you that. And it's just, you know, sort of like what we're talking about for black food. Right. It's just. That's one of the beautiful things I believe about going to an HBCU is there's a way that you could be nurtured at that institution that would not fly at Harvard or any other place because it's like, no, no, bro. You can't be cursing out the students. But at, a, at my school, they're like, whatever, dude, this man's been here for 35 years. He ain't going nowhere. So we gonna let him rock. And because I passed his class, I'll, I'll put a bow on this because I passed his class with all his rules. It made the rest of college super easy.
1: You could do that. You could do anything.
0: Yes. If I can do his class, I could do anything. And the love that I have, not just for HBCUs in general, but for my specific institution, I credit it to Mr. Myers. Because after passing his class, I felt like this school belongs to me. I can do whatever I want here. I can make it here. And so I want to thank him if he has... Apple Podcasts or Spotify in heaven. I hope he's listening. <laughs> I want to give him a shout out for just being that stern but fair figure in many of our lives at South Carolina State University. I'm sorry for his family, uh, but I'm grateful that I had the opportunity to meet him. So that's my shout out for this episode. Anella, I'm sorry that you have to follow up such a sad situation, but it's also happy because we're celebrating the life of someone that I cared about. Do you have a shout out for us today?
1: I didn't have one planned, but now I do after listening to yours. So similar to KJ's experience with this professor, I have to shout out my dad. I did not go to an HBCU. And there is, (laughs) I would say sometimes there is a certain harshness to the way that Black people nurture each other. And I never really understood it. And I rebelled against it when I was a kid. I hated it. I hated how strict he was. He could be kind of mean. He would say something like that. Get that shit off my wall before something <laughs> would talk to you that. And I'd be like, eh, he's so mean. Like, especially because compared to, especially my white friends, I'm like, their parents are like this. You know, there were so many rules, so many things. But as an adult, I read Ta-Nehisi Coates' Between the World and Me and that book made me understand my dad in a new way um it made me understand that he was really really hard on us because frankly i think he had ptsd i won't lie about that my dad could be unfair sometimes i think he really struggled with his experiences as a black man who was incredibly intelligent and driven in america but was born a generation too early and i think he was hard on us in the way that many black elders are hard on us, not because they want to be, but because they want to prepare us for a world they know won't treat us fairly. And it's this desire to like protect us. And the only way they know how to do that sometimes is just by snatching us back, right? Like we want to go out and we want to fly free and we want to try all the things. And they're like, get your little ass back here. You gonna get in trouble. And when you get in <laughs> trouble, it's going to be different than when your white friends get in trouble. And so, you know, I didn't understand that about him when I was younger. And we butted heads like a lot, a lot, a lot. It was bad. I tend to be a little independent if (laughs) if you can't tell. (laughs) But now that I'm an adult, I understand where that came from. And I also understand the trauma that he was struggling with, right? I think my dad had an incredible amount of trauma that no single person should have to live with that was deeply connected to his experience as a very dark-skinned man who found that some of his ambitions and plans were scuttled just by the fact that he was black. And so I'm happy that I've come to that understanding now as an adult and I'm also happy that I was able to repair my relationship with my dad before he died because we did have a really rough period. And I'm glad that I was able to have that connection with him, that closeness with him before he passed. So I do feel like now, like this book project, I never thought anything like this would happen. And it's the hardest thing I've ever done because I'm balancing trying to make sure my business still exists and can pay my bills when the book is over with a book, which is actually a full-time job. So I'm working two full-time jobs, but I feel like sometimes it's going to sound cheesy, but- you know those shirts that say I am my ancestors' wildest dreams?
0: Yep, yep.
1: Especially this book project, sometimes I feel like I feel like that's hanging over me and it is definitely a pressure that I'm putting on myself, but I do think my dad would be thrilled. <laughs> he would give the biggest, loudest, <laughs> most annoyingly loud belly laugh and be like, see, I fucking told you.
0: That's and he wouldn't so
1: say it exactly like that.
0: Yeah, no, 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 that's that's deep. Shout out to your dad, man, for real, for real. And thank y'all for listening to this most recent episode of Fix Your Plate. We want to invite you to please like, subscribe, follow, comment, share, do all the things. Let all your foodie friends know that we're out here in these streets. And we're talking about these eats and the culture in between and all that there so appreciate y'all for listening anella you i love your outro can you do it i know we don't you don't like doing the same thing all the time but you do it so well did you mind <laughs>
1: Well, this one was alternately funny and heavy, which I think it tends to be most of uh, my conversations with KJ, but I'm so glad that you were able to take a few minutes with us to sit down and hopefully fix yourself a plate.